0: We find that it is necessary to contend for the faith, for there are people who reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people who reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authorities which he establishes. In Jude, Jude verse 11, Korah serves as a poster child For the rebellious. That he is a supreme example of what a rebellious person thinks, does, and their outcome. Last week we focused on the thinking of Korah that contributed to his rebelliousness. And we said that that rebelliousness came from These four areas of thought. First, that he was being denied a position that was due him. Secondly, thinking that the leaders were trying to selfishly accumulate power for themselves. Thirdly, thinking that leaders were established by naturalistic means as opposed to God's ordination. And then lastly, thinking that his position was insignificant and not worthy of his talents and abilities and so he became extremely disgruntled unhappy upset and rebellious this morning from numbers chapter 16 we're going to focus on the manner in which Korah's rebellion manifested itself what does that look like what did he do How was that rebelliousness seen? So that we might be better able to see the kinds of things that are going to lead to rebellion even in the life of the church. That we might be aware of the red flags that were and see the need for repentance and see it early. So what does Korah's... ...rebellious spirit looked like? Well, first, Korah's rebellious spirit could be seen in the manner in which he stirred up strife. The manner in which he stirred up strife. A spirit of rebellion spreads. It multiplies. It is contagious. For that is the very essence of what rebelliousness does... It seeks to cause others to be unhappy, dissatisfied, disgruntled with the leadership. It starts with a rebellious spirit manifesting itself in a few individuals who are going to become the carriers of strife and rebellion. Look with me at Numbers 16.1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelath, sons of Reuben, took action. So, here are four individuals that are noted that are the ringleaders of the rebellion that's going to be manifested in Numbers chapter 16. And the ultimate ringleader is Korah. So, it's Korah and then the three... And then it's going to spread. There are a few unhappy campers in Israel, and they find each other. It's amazing to me how disgruntled, dissatisfied individuals are able to find each other. But they do, they are gravitating towards each other. Maybe they send up trial balloons of complaining about this or that to see what kind of reaction other people are going to have, to see whether they're going to be rebuked or supported, where others are going to share those same kinds of disgruntled feelings, or they are going to be put off. But they find each other. Then, these individuals become more open or public about their dissatisfaction. Numbers 16.2. And they rose up. Before. Moses. N-A-S. King James they rose up. Before Moses. And Numbers 16.2 the NIV says. They rose up against. Moses. But there is a different Hebrew word. That's used in verse 2. From that which is used in verse 3. A different preposition. And a. Good translation of that preposition is what is found in the NAS and the King James. And that is that they rose up before Moses. For literally it means in front of his face. In front of his face. We might say in a more common vernacular, they got into Moses' face. They confronted him openly and publicly. They were no longer moving behind his back. And we talk about people who talked behind people's back. That's what started. They started talking behind Moses' back. And then it moved to a place where now it was becoming open. It was becoming public. It was becoming apparent to all, including Moses, that these individuals were indeed disgruntled, upset, unhappy. So the rebellious spirit comes to Moses' attention. Application, strife, and division begins to surface over time. Many times it it starts in a very subtle, low-key way with a handful of individuals who are unhappy. And they become emboldened. They become empowered. And they become much more vocal. And now we're not just talking about things around their dinner table, or in the back of the church, or on the phone, or on the internet, and just in private conversations, but it moves to the place where now it becomes quite apparent that the whole congregation becomes knowledgeable, that there are some real unhappy people in our midst. And that's where we are in verse 2. It starts in a clandestine way and it moves to a much uh, more public manifestation. Next, a rebellious spirit spreads as individuals seek to get support from some influential people in their midst. So, now these four individuals are beginning to... Search for others that will take up their cause. That will support them in their complaints against Moses and Aaron. If you notice, Numbers 16.1, uh, it says at the end of that verse, if you have the NAS, it says they took action. You have the King James, it says that they took men. And if you have an NIV, it says they became insolent. Because what is rather odd about verse 1 is that there is no object of the verb. It says they took, but there's nothing there. You don't know what they took. And so the NAS says they took action. The King James says they took men. And NIV, in essence, they took umbrage. They were insolent. We don't know exactly what they took, but what is clear is that they began to get people on their side, but in particular, influential people. Notice how this is described in verse 2. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. So, what do we find out about these individuals that are courted, that are solicited, that are tried to be made helpful in the rebelliousness? Well, first, they were significant in number. 250. 250. Now, that's not a lot of people when you talk in terms of Israel probably at this time was well over a million people. But when you talk about 250 leaders... In the nation of Israel. It was significant. It was no longer four. It was now 250. And of course. The more people you get. The louder the voice becomes. The more insolent. It becomes. Next they're described as leaders. In the congregation. NAS. These were leaders. Who occupied a place. Of authority. For it says in verse 2 that they were chosen in the assembly. There are leaders that are just natural leaders. People that others follow, that they look up to. Whether they have an office or not. They are influential people. And then there are influential people that actually hold office. Such as an elder in the church. There are many times influential people besides the elders. That their voice carries great weight with certain people. But then, of course, you've got the elders who are the elected leaders. That's what is being referred to here as the chosen and the assembly. And lastly, these were individuals who were, were respected. Men of renown. Literally, men of a name. Men who had made a name for themselves. These were people who were looked up to. These were people that were well-known, trusted individuals. These were the kinds of people that Cora and Abiram went after. If we can get these people on our side, we've got it made. I remember as a young person, about 12 years of age, My home church went through a rather nasty split. We lost half of our congregation. It was a miserable time in our church, and I remember it well. And one of the reasons I remember it well is because my father was an elder in the church. And at that time, I believe that there were five elders. There may have been seven. I think there were five. But I do remember that one night there came a knock at our door and there were three elders that were present and they said to my dad, Kinsey, we'd like to talk to you. And my dad said, fine. And I was sent upstairs because it was a private conversation. But in the farmhouse in which I lived, it didn't matter what room in the house you were in, you could hear what was going on and I could hear what was taking place. And these three elders, that were very disgruntled with what was going on in the church, said to my dad, we're leaving. And they said to him, Kinsey, if you will come with us, we can put this church under. We can close the doors. We can put an end to this church. And I remember listening to my dad... And you could tell that he was weeping. And he said to them, Brothers, why in the world would we ever want to close the doors of the church? And he said, You can count me out. He was staying. I was aware of some of the issues. And I knew that my dad was not happy with everything that was taking place. It was a tumultuous time in our church but my dad was firmly committed to the life of the church and the proclamation of the gospel and he said, I'm not going to go along. But their thought was, Kinsey, if we can get you, we can get everybody. That's the kind of people that individuals who are rebellious are looking for. The kinds of person, if they say, if we can get them then we can probably get everybody else. If we can just get them to go along with us, then we've got it made. What is interesting is that these were individuals who joined in the rebellion rather than squash the rebellion. Look at verse 2. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel. Why didn't these princes, these leaders in Israel put a stop to this rebellion right here? Because there's no question as we work through our text that Korah and the others were in the wrong. So why didn't these leaders exercise their authority? Why didn't they step to the plate? Why didn't they say, Korah, this is wrong. We're not going to go along. We're not going to participate. There's nothing in the text that tells us why but rather simply that it occurs and they join in application. What do we do when people come to us with gripes and complaints? We can do one of two things. We either foster that rebellious spirit or we seek to quench it and to put it out. We either are an agitator or a peacemaker. We either contribute to the spreading of this disgruntled spirit or we stand against the tide. But we've got to do one. And don't think that just by being passive you stay out of it. You don't. You've got to choose sides. You've got to be a participant. And so here they go along with Korah and the others, the rebellious spirit then spreads to the entire congregation. Numbers sixteen nineteen. Thus, Korah assembled all the congregation against them. That's against Moses and Aaron at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So it starts with four people. It spreads to two hundred and fifty leaders. In the nation of Israel. And then spreads to the entire congregation. When they got the 250 leaders. They got everybody else. And so now it's Moses and Aaron. And the entire congregation of Israel. What a sad state of affairs. It is absolutely essential that we become peacemakers among God's people. In the book of Jude, it says that we are to contend for the faith. Because there are going to be those that reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to stand up against wrongdoing. We have to stand up against gossip against murmuring, against complaining, against seeking to overthrow what God established. God has called us to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Some people are great peacemakers. Other people are great agitators. They hear something and they spread it. The rumor. The gossip. They make people feel that they're on their side and they actually encourage them in their wrongdoing rather than to reprove or to exhort or to show comfort or to give aid. In Proverbs chapter 6, the Word of God says, there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. And these six things are actually related. (coughs) Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to do evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates the spreading of strife and division. Second way in which this rebellion manifests itself Is in opposing others. Look at verse 3. And they assembled together. And now the preposition against Moses. And that's a good translation. And it's found in the King James NAS and the NIV. They stood against Moses. Different word from verse 2. They were in opposition. Against Moses. And notice that they are opposed to Moses. I like that word. Because opposed means to stand against. It's, it's like two people face to face. And they are in opposition to Moses. They were not interested in working out their differences. They were not interested in resolving the issue. They were simply against Moses And Aaron and their agenda was to remove them. They weren't seeking truth. They weren't seeking the honor and glory of God. They weren't seeking that which is right. They were simply opposed to Moses and Aaron. This opposition is seen in a sinful defiance of God's earthly leaders. Moses issued a command to Dathan and Biram. Verse 12. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eli. He wanted them there. Korah is standing up against Moses. And Moses knows that this is more than just Korah and the ringleaders. And there's two important ringleaders that aren't there. And that's Dathan and Abiram. And so Moses summons them. He says, come here. Because Moses wants to work this out. Moses wants to deal with it. Moses wants to get this behind them. And Dathan and Abiram refused to come. Verse 12. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come up. No, we're not going. Moses was trying to get a meeting together in which these things could be worked out. He was looking for reconciliation. They wanted no part. They weren't willing to listen. They weren't willing to receive an explanation. They were just opposed. And they said, we aren't coming. And then they give the excuses as to why they weren't coming to this meeting and why they weren't going to work these things out. Notice the excuses. First, they misrepresent the truth. I said this is sinful defiance because that which they are doing is in fact sinful. And notice it with me. First, there is a misrepresentation about the past. Numbers 16, 13. Is it not enough that you brought us up out of a land... Flowing with milk and honey. Now that's an interesting description of the land of Egypt as far as the children of Israel were concerned. Remember God had promised them to take them to a land of milk and honey. And they said, you took this out of a land of milk and honey. What was the truth? Exodus 1.13 The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service were, and they made them serve with rigor. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shapira, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, see them upon the stools. If it be a son, then you shall kill him. They oppressed these people. They had misery. They worked hard. They were persecuted. But that's not the way in which they represented the past. They were giving no credit to Moses or Aaron and to God for the deliverance that they had experienced. It's amazing what people sometimes do with the past. Some people have selective memories. There's even a word for it because it's so common today and it's called redactionism. Redactionism is when you take the past and you make it to be something other than is factual because it's just so common. The uh, Soviet Union was common for it when we think of propaganda and they would misrepresent The past and the things that were done in previous years in order to get people on their side. Well, that's what they're doing. They're misrepresenting the past to a younger generation that supposedly wouldn't know better. But there were a whole host of people there that would have known better. That would have known the truth. And they closed their eyes to the truth. That's what's really important to understand about sinful rebellion. It is the unwillingness to acknowledge the truth. So they start off with this, this lie. Then they blame Moses for what was not his fault. Verse 14. Indeed you have not brought us into a land of flowing with milk and honey. Nor have you given it an inheritance of fields and vineyards. That was true. But they were on their way. They were going to the promised land. But they weren't willing to give time to Moses and to God. They weren't willing to walk by faith. They wanted it now. And they said, Moses, you have disappointed us. Moses, you have failed. We're not there. Why not, they say. Which leads them to number three. They ascribe sinful motives to Moses that were untrue. Indeed, you have brought us into a land flowing milk and honey. You have not given us inheritance of the fields and vineyards. And now notice this. Would you put out the eyes of these men? Some of your translations say rightly, would you gouge out the eyes of these men? Where in the world does that come from? Where is there any mention of Moses gouging out the eyes of these rebellious people. But they're saying, Moses, putting it in a more modern vernacular, we're not coming up because you led us from a good place to a bad place. You have not fulfilled your promises. And what's worse is we're not going to get a fair shake. You're just going to gouge out the eyes of anybody who... Who is before you? We're not going to come up that. We're not going to be a part of that. We're not going to let you gouge our eyes out. That's not what Moses is inviting them for to gouge out their eyes. He wants to reconcile, he wants to work this through. But they will be unappeased, they won't be satisfied. They would much rather attribute sinful, false uh, motives to those in leadership. What is interesting is they represent themselves as being morally superior to Moses. We're not going to come up because we're not going to participate in your sinful practice. We want nothing to do with the gouging out of these eyes of these men. What is fascinating in the text is that Nathan and and Abiram, uh, Nathan and Abiram, are considered to be ring leaders, but they're Passive in their ring leadership. They don't actually come before Moses, but they contribute to this in a powerful way. By representing themselves as being morally superior above this. And that's often what happens in churches where there's splits. That there's a a group of people that view themselves as morally superior. We're going to just stay out of this. We're just going to close our eyes to this. You know, the old see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. We're just not going to get involved. And so what those people usually do is just leave. They don't want to be there for the showdown. So they just hightail it. They're out of there. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to be on anybody's side. But you see, that stands in tremendous contrast to the book of Jude, which says contend for the faith. They should have stood up. But notice in these charges, not only are they not standing up for Moses and Aaron, but they are abating, helping the other side. They are contributing to this mess. And amazingly, all of this works. All of this works. And so then we have Moses' response. And that is, Moses becomes defensive. Defensive. And in his being defensive, he becomes angry. Verse 15. Then Moses became very angry. He was outraged. Well, a lot of lies were being said about Moses. What motivated him? What he did? What he was going to do. And he became angry. He became outraged. But notice verse 4. When Moses heard this, initially, he fell on his face. His initial response was one of prayer, was one of humility, of one of taking this to God. But as things got worse and worse, Moses' heart also began to change. Moses allowed this rebellious spirit to affect him negatively. And that's often what happens. The rebellious spirit brings out the worst in everyone, even those that are in the right. Then nothing good comes of it, it brings everybody down, the entire church's testimony. Everybody becomes disrespected. Everybody's reputation is damaged. It's a sad state of affairs. In his defensiveness, Moses seeks to clear his name. Verse 15. Then Moses became very angry, said to the Lord, do not regard their offering. And then here's the declaring of his name. I've not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses saying, man, I'm the leader here. I led the children of Israel out of Egypt. God sent them forth with gold and earrings and all this stuff. And he said, and I didn't ask a single donkey from anybody. Moses said, I'm not getting rich through this. And I didn't do harm to anybody. I didn't beat anybody. I didn't hurt anybody. They're talking about me gouging out people's eyes. Where is that coming from? I never laid a hand on a single soul. And they're talking about gouging out my eyes. They're talking about what motivates me. I didn't take a single donkey. So Moses becomes incredibly defensive. And in his defensiveness, Moses wants to be vindicated. Verse 16, 15. Do not regard their offering. He wants God to vindicate him. To prove that he's innocent. To prove that he's not worthy of these charges. Application, rebellion brings out the worst in leaders. Because oftentimes they don't respond the way that they should. Initially, Moses does. But it gets to him. It gets to him. And you can understand why it gets to him. And you can understand why these things happen. That's why it's so important that you nip these things in the bud before they spread like wildfire to the place where nothing good can come of it. Thirdly, rebellion ultimately manifests itself in a showdown. The point of determination. Who really has the power and authority? Who is right and who is wrong? The showdown came in the form of offering fire to the Lord. Verse 16. And Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they, along with Aaron. And each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron shall bring his fire pan. And the showdown comes in the doorway of the tabernacle. Verse 18. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus, Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the the the, uh, tent of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. You know what this is? This is the showdown at high noon. Remember all the old westerns? You know, the, the, the two people meet out uh, in a gunfight in front of the saloon. And they're looking at each other. And they're walking down. And all the townspeople are gathered around and they just watch. That's what we have. We have 250 princes on that side. They're not carrying, they're not carrying holsters with, with guns, but they're carrying fire pans. And they're marching towards the door of the tabernacle. And here comes Moses and Aaron. And Aaron has his fire pan. And they're going to meet at the door of the tabernacle to find out once and for all who's right and who's wrong. There's the showdown. Well, next week... We're going to find out what happens at the shootout at the O.K. Corral. How all of this is going to be resolved. And I make light, but it's not something to make light of. So we lament. Oh, if only it had not come to this place. First, if the thinking of Korah would have been held in check. Long before Korah begins to round up the leaders in the nation of Israel, only if Korah would have listened to reason and governed the thoughts of his own heart and mind and submitted them to the teaching of the Word of God. If only others would have refrained from joining in that rebellion. If the Dathans and Abiram's If the 250 princes would have stood up and said, Korah, you're wrong, it would have gotten nowhere. It would not have taken foot. Nothing could have transpired. Again, the exhortation, contend for the faith. If people would have contended with Korah, it never would have happened. If the leaders in Israel would have done their job and quelled the rebellion when it became known, That when Moses and Aaron were opposed openly, that the people would have showed concern and would have been governed by the truth. When these things were flying out there, there were a whole host of people. Just your common, ordinary Israelites who came up out of the land of Egypt and knew what was being said was false But there were a lot of people that were just standing by quietly. That's why the Word of God tells us to contend for the faith. Don't stand by quietly and watch the church go to pot. Don't stand by quietly and watch the gospel no longer be preached. Don't stand by quietly and allow a rebellious and false spirit spread in the life of the church. There were varying degrees of responsibility, starting with Dathan and Byram, moving to the 250 princes, then ultimately with the entire congregation. Anywhere along that chain, this could have stopped. But it did. And it leads to disastrous consequences. Disastrous consequences. This again brings us back to Jude and the point of Korah as example. Korah should have been rejected by the people of God. That's why Korah is referred to in the book of Jude. Contend for the faith. Korah should have been opposed. As opposed to enabled. He shouldn't have been given a hearing. He shouldn't have been allowed to spread the lies and the gossip and the falsehoods. We're to contend for the faith by standing against those who reject God's authority and those to whom his authority has been entrusted. Moses and Aaron were serving God. And it was because of that that they were opposed. Because what Korah really was opposed to was the will of God. What a dangerous place to be in. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would guard us. Lord, we don't know of any strife. We don't know of any contention. We don't know of any open wound. That exists among us. But Lord, maybe there is somebody that's disgruntled here this morning. Maybe there is somebody who's very unhappy. And maybe they have begun to cast about to see if somebody else is unhappy too. Lord, guard us. It's a fragile thing. We desire unity not just for unity's sake, but we desire unity that we might glorify you, that our testimony might be sweet. That the word of God would go forth in power. That the ministry would stand. And the people of God would know a great blessing. We're not there yet, but oh God, awful, awful things happen. In number 16, as a fruit of this rebellion. Lord, awful things happen when churches split. Awful things happen when God's people can't get along. Guard us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.